We are Radio Catskill. From the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chatskill. I'm Patricia Robayo, filling in for Tim Bruno. On today's show, during the local edition last night, Sam Mellons from New York Focus talked about the effects of the new village law on the creation of villages statewide. We'll find out what he said. Camping at Bethel Woods, the original Woodstock venue, opens an upscale campground on the Hawk Festival grounds. We chat with the Bethel Woods CEO, Eric Francis. The Rockland Arts Festival is inspiring artists with two art legends, Henry Matisse and Dorothy Glipsy. Plus, the latest headlines from the Sullivan County Democrat. And Maggie Fitzpatrick is here live with the latest from her Moving Towards Health column in the Democrat. That's all coming up on Radio Chasco this morning. But first, the news from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. House Republicans are pushing ahead with an effort to impeach President Biden's Homeland Security Secretary. NPR's Giles Snyder reports a vote by the full House is expected today. The impeachment resolution against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas will be on the floor after the Republican-led House Rules Committee advanced it Monday evening in a party-line 8-4 to vote. Republicans accused Mayorkas of failing to uphold his oath of office amid record numbers of people at the southern border. The panel's chairman is Oklahoma Congressman Tom Cole. If he will not do so, his duty... Uh, then unfortunately the House must uh, do its constitutional duty. However, with their slim majority, it's not clear if House Republicans have the votes. Democrats call the effort a baseless political stunt. Giles Snyder, NPR News. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Doha, Qatar, following a meeting in Cairo with Egyptian leaders on negotiating a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war to allow for the release of hostages, along with aid for Gaza. This amid growing concerns in Egypt about Israel's stated intentions to expand the combat in Gaza to areas on the Egyptian border that are crammed with displaced Palestinians. Massive flooding is swamping Southern California, including the Los Angeles area, as a powerful winter storm known as an atmospheric river dumps historic amounts of rain along with strong gusty winds. And there have been hundreds of mudslides in L.A. alone. Dion Perrineau says she saw a wall of mud sliding to her house. People think that it, it kind of crashed in. It did not. It was a little bit of mud, then a lot of mud, and then we heard the sliding glass door come off of the frame. The National Weather Service says rain continues through today, then tapers off tonight with sunny skies by tomorrow. Stocks opened higher this morning as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen appears before a House committee. NPR Scott Horsley reports the Dow jumped about 130 points in early trading. Yellen is speaking to the House Financial Services Committee about the stability of the financial system. Her remarks come at a positive time for the U.S. economy with strong growth, moderating inflation, and low unemployment. The new leader of the FAA is also on Capitol Hill today to address concerns about Boeing. Mike Whitaker says the federal government plans to assign more people to monitor the aircraft maker after a panel blew off a newly built 737 shortly after takeoff. BP reported higher than expected profits for the most recent quarter, but the oil giant's earnings for all of last year were only about half what they were the previous year when Russia's invasion of Ukraine sent energy prices soaring. Scott Horsley, Empire News, Washington. 
And on Wall Street, the Dow is up 71 points. The Nasdaq is down 33, S&P 500 down 1. This is NPR News. Twelve years after his death, there's a new picture book by Maurice Sendak. As NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports, it's a count-along book called Ten Little Rabbits. Mino the magician waves his wand, and poof, one, then two, then three rabbits spring out of his hat. But they keep coming. By ten rabbits, Mino's had enough and starts to put them all back, one rabbit at a time. So readers get the chance to count up to ten and then back down again. Ten Little Rabbits was originally a tiny pamphlet for a fundraiser for the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia. The simple sketches have been enlarged to fit a full-size picture book. This is the third posthumous Sendak book to be published. There's also a major retrospective of his work that will travel to Los Angeles in the spring and Denver in the fall. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. We'll raise up our glasses against evil forces singing. Country singer Toby Keith has died. A statement on his website says he died peacefully last night. The larger-than-life singer of hits, including Fear for My Horses, Who's Your Daddy and Made in America, was 62 years old. Keith announced in the summer of 2022 that he was diagnosed with stomach cancer and was undergoing treatment. Crude oil prices are trading higher, up just over 1% at $73.52 a barrel. On Wall Street, mixed territory, the Dow is up 74 points. The Nasdaq down 35, S&P 500 down 2. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts and the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Patricia Robile, filling in for Tim Bruno. New York Focus is an independent newsroom reporting on how the power and politics in New York impact your life and how the state really works. Radio Casco has partnered with New York Focus to regularly bring you their in-depth journalism. A recent New York law makes it more difficult for communities to incorporate as villages. The previous law was more than 100 years old and deemed outdated by officials who said it didn't reflect the contemporary community planning practices. A bill passed from in both the state assembly and the senate to address that issue, but some upcoming villages, including one in Sullivan County, will be exempt from the new regulations. Sam Mellons from New York Focus was on the local edition last night with Jason Doe to go over this new village law. This law is about parts of towns, like sections or neighborhoods within them. Communities, Incorporating yeah. themselves as villages. Yeah, communities, you could say, right? And historically in New York, there's been a very low threshold to do that. Basically, if you have an area that like, so makes some sense, like a fire district or a, you know, a school district or something like that with at least 500 people... And you you can have a petition, then have a referendum, and then you're a village. And the new law was passed to create some additional requirements, mostly to ensure the financial stability of new villages, um, because there has been uh, at least two instances in New York history, one relatively recent on Long Island, where a village incorporates, and then it turns out it becomes insolvent, the tax base isn't big enough, it has to dissolve, and the town that it's in is left with a lot of debt. Um, 
So the the bill is designed to ensure that that doesn't happen, but also to ensure that the town that the village is inside isn't harmed by the incorporation, because if it's, uh, you know, sort of the opposite, if it's a very wealthy area that incorporates that takes much of its tax revenue, that could have a negative effect on the town. So it's sort of to more closely monitor the fiscal impacts of forming new villages. Are are there more than, than one village in the state that are exempt? Because your article is about one particular one that we're going to get into here. But are there more than one that, that are exempt? Yes. So the village of Edgemont, or the proposed village, rather, of Edgemont in, in Westchester, you know, some miles uh, just, just north of Yonkers, pretty much, is exempt from this law. And then the... <laughs> I've, uh, I, this, this, as you said, wasn't, wasn't part of my article. I've been reading the, been catching up, reading the local coverage on it. I believe the proposed village of Atera, sort of more, more, more in your, in your area, is also exempt from the law. Although I understand that's somewhat a subject of legal dispute right now, whether or not it is indeed exempt from the new requirements. Yeah, a new village named Atera's is proposed in Sullivan County, and uh, a vote that took place on January 18th voted in favor of it overwhelmingly. However, uh, official certification awaits approval from Judge Stephen Schick. And this village was initiated by the Vinzitz Hasidic community in Kaimisha Lake, and the voting process was briefly interrupted due to legislative changes, prompting an order to show cause upon confirmation of election results. A final approval will be sought from the state under village law. And uh, that's according to uh, Thompson Town Attorney Michael Mednick. So that's that's kind of the local angle. But let's talk about let's talk about this Westchester County village that you, you did this deep dive in, because as you point out in the article, not only does this have implications for the the proposed village and the town that it would be leaving um, and the people that live in those places, but it also shines some light into how Albany works uh, in the way that you report it. Yeah, I think so. So, uh, you know, very few people uh, in, in the state or among your listeners perhaps live in the town of Greenberg or in the proposed village of Edgemont, but I think it's the, how the whole episode unfolded that resulted in that that community being exempt from the law is very instructive into sort of how deals are how the sausage is made in Albany, as as they say. What was interesting as I read your article was learning it's not just that Edgemont wants an exemption because it's it's ready to incorporate as a village, but this is a place that's tried in the past and was not able to. Yeah, it's tried. Uh, I mean, you know, talk of of Edgemont, which is you know very a sort of ritzy neighborhood in the town of, of Greenberg, you might say. Uh, talk of Edgemont incorporating as a village has been going on for decades, and in recent years, it sort of uh, got got a, 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 a kickstarted in recent years when the town of Greenberg uh, reassessed its property tax valuation, which uh, put more of the tax burden. You know, some people would say justly. Uh, uh, on Edgemont, where property values are very high, and this got this, and among other things, among other things, got people really talking about whether they should consider forming their own independent village. Uh, they've tried twice in recent years. Both of those petitions were tossed out by New York State judges for not meeting the various legal requirements of forming a new village, um, and they're currently in the process of trying again. So we'll we'll see if third time is the charm for them. This is the wealthiest community within the town of Greenberg. So that means a hit to the taxes 
uh, that that town's collecting? When I talked to the town supervisor, he was sort of listing things that he thinks could be eliminated if Edgemont uh, incorporates as a village. The community center, job training programs, uh, career, you know, sort of uh, computer literacy programs. The people who are leading the incorporation effort dispute this. They, they think they have sort of different calculations and say there wouldn't be such a big hit to the town's tax revenue. But I think it's not it's not uh, totally certain uh, which how, how it would really shake out. A real standout quote in this article is from uh, Greenberg Town Supervisor uh, Paul Feiner saying, uh, quote, let's say the wealthy areas of Fifth Avenue would want to break away from New York City because they don't want to pay for the services in Harlem. You know, and that's that's his quote there, essentially saying that th- this is a similar sort of thing that that has two implications. Uh, and, the, and the first one is financial. But first, I want to say, like, you, you cite the, the pro incorporation. That's the people that want to incorporate Edgemont as a village uh, a number of times. Is there besides the town supervisor among the people of Greenberg? Is there an anti incorporation faction? Certainly. I certainly talk to residents not only of Greenberg, but also specifically of the Edgemont neighborhood who are against incorporation. Uh, I'd be in, I think the entire town board, which is the supervisor and four other members, is against incorporation. Uh, but the people who vote in the referendum, if one is held, will be just the residents of Edgemont, not all of Greenberg. So uh, they're the ones whose uh, opinion is maybe most significant when it comes to deciding this issue. The other implication of that quote for me is the extent to which uh, race may play into these decisions. And that gets an interesting twist later on in the article when you really dig into how this exemption happened in Albany. But can you first just talk about the demographics of Greenberg versus Edgemont in terms of racial makeup? Yes. So Greenberg is fairly diverse. There's a significant uh, black population. There, I think there has been for a while. There's a significant Hispanic population. Those groups are present in the Edgemont section of the town too, but in a much much smaller amount. Uh, it's more white, and then there's a uh, a pretty large Asian minority in Edgemont. So you definitely do get sort of a demographic difference between these two areas. The deal that led to Edgemont getting a pretty particular exemption, and and it's a long one, too. This is for the next, what is it? 16 years, yeah. 16 years, so until uh, 2040. Um, Basically, they got Stuart Cousins actually made the deal herself for this. And I think it's really interesting how this happened. So Andrea Stuart Cousins is the majority leader of the state Senate, you know, one of the very powerful people in Albany. And she represents all of Greenberg including Edgemont, and she was putting forward this bill to create these more stringent requirements, requiring a study, creating this new state board that you have to get approval from if you want to start a village, and, you know, really sort of examine, holding it up to the light more closely, you could say. And Edgemont, the, the pro-incorporation people in Edgemont were really not happy with this. And so they went to their assembly member, you know, Stuart Cousins is in the Senate, so they went to their member in the assembly, Amy Pollan, who represents Edgemont, but not the rest of Greenberg, only Edgemont, the part that wants to incorporate. And they said, can you do something about this? She's been around a long time. She's senior. She has a lot of sway. And so she got the assembly leadership to say, well, you could pass that bill in the Senate, but we're not going to pass it in the assembly unless you exempt Edgemont. And 
Andrea Stewart-Cousins basically took that deal. And without, as, at least as I heard it, without the input of the assembly member for the rest of Greenberg and without the input of the town leaders, like the local town, the town supervisor and the town board of Greenberg, who only found out about it months after the fact. So basically, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, Amy Paulin, and the legislative leadership cut this deal that the more local representatives weren't aware of until long after it was signed and sealed. And, and I want to continue on that story, but I just got to ask you about one thing that you said in there, which is Assembly Member Amy Poland. So her resistance to this wasn't just that they were going to lose her vote. She actually persuaded other senior Assembly members uh, to say they wouldn't vote for it unless Edgemont got an exemption. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I think this is a really interesting thing about how Albany works is that often if they can make a compelling case for it to key players, single legislators can hold up bills that there may be a broader constituency for. But if the right legislator wants to stand in the way of it, they can. And people that I talked to from Greenberg were saying to me, there's 150 members of the assembly like, how come this one gets to hold it up? And that's that, frankly, is just the way that Albany works sometimes. And then, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, in your article, the next step in this story that I want to highlight is that uh, she actually went to Greenberg uh, Town Board meeting and basically said, look, you know, I can pass what I need to pass in the Senate, but I can't pass what I want in the Assembly, essentially saying that she had to take this deal. Yeah, and that's what her her communications director said to me as well. The case that they were making was basically, this is a good law to have in place for the state. The only way to get it passed was to agree to this exception, and we thought that was worth it. What that doesn't answer is why the assembly member, her name is Mary Jane Shimsky, representing the rest of Greenberg and the Greenberg town supervisor and town board, weren't looped into the contents of the deal until months later. Because there were even after they struck the deal, there were still some particulars to hammer out. And the people involved in hammering that out were Stuart Cousins, Paulin, actually some of the citizens of Edgemont who hired a lobbyist to lobby legislators on what that final deal would look like. They spent over $12,000 on, on lobbying. Uh, so they were involved. But the local assembly member and the local elected officials were not involved, which I think is a very interesting choice. How does a bill that's been passed get changed after it's been passed? There's a mechanism that allows that to happen? Yes, and this is another very strange thing about the way Albany works that we actually reported on recently um, at at New York Focus. It's called a, a chapter amendment. Basically what it is, when the when the governor gets a bill, you know we have like like in at the federal level we have the system where the legislature passes a bill and it goes to the governor for a signature or veto. She can also do a third thing. She can do what's called a chapter amendment. She say, "I approve this bill on condition that such and such changes are made." And often she'll if there's some part of a bill that she doesn't like, she'll go to legislative leadership or she'll go to the bill sponsors and say, "I'll sign your bill." but only if you make these changes that I want. Otherwise, I'm going to veto it. And then they have to decide, would they prefer to get it vetoed and try again, or would they prefer to have her sign it and but not get all of what they wanted? It's very sort of uh, 
secretive. No, what what is in the process of negotiating these deals is not public. What's in these deals isn't public until often weeks or even months after they're signed. And that's how it is that the Greenberg Town Board and the assembly member didn't know about this until months after it had happened. And uh, I mean, I think there's a sense in which it's anti-democratic because I think most of us would say the process of legislating is supposed to take place in public view and give people the opportunity to weigh in. And this is a part of that process that can involve really significant changes to laws that have been passed by people's elected representatives without anyone getting a chance to weigh in or share their opinion of it. Now, let's continue with uh, Andrew Stewart-Cousins' comments uh, at that board meeting. Um, She gave an interesting uh, bit of perspective of why she doesn't want to prevent Edgemont from seeking incorporation again. Yeah, so the, the 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 quote the quote that that appears in this article. I, I listened to the whole town town meeting, and this was this I thought I thought was one of the most interesting things she said. She said, "I never like to pull the rug from under anyone or any entity that is following the law and change the rules in the middle of the game. As a black woman who has reached places and things get changed, it makes me uncomfortable." And the the first point about you know keeping the rules the same for these these people who have been involved in this process for years was something that I heard from a bunch of different players in this story. The second point, I think, is obviously personal to her. This article was first published two weeks ago. Has anything happened since you published it? Not that I have heard of. I mean, the, the you know, the exemption was finally passed into law and signed by the governor, so that's in place now. I, I think the pro-incorporation side is planning to move forward with their effort, but I haven't heard any updates from the folks that I had talked to since this story came out. You know, I've been, I've been working on, on other other things besides uh, a, uh, a two or three square mile neighborhood in Westchester and what's happening there. Another step uh, in this process is there's an independent consulting firm that's studying the effect of Edgemont incorporating and what that effect would have on the larger town of Greenberg. But you, and this is at the very end of the article, you cite another provision that kind of puts a caveat on that study that's still to come. Can you explain that one to us? Yeah. So part of the law that applies everywhere except Edgemont is that there has to be a study. It's actually two studies about the, the fiscal effect that incorporating a village would have. Would it be bad for the village? Would it be bad for the town? And if a state board looks at the study and says, says this doesn't make fiscal sense, it can't proceed. In Edgemont, there is currently being conducted a study of these same questions. What effect would incorporation have on the town of Greenberg and on the potential village of Edgemont? But the unique thing about Edgemont's exception from this law is that this study cannot be used as a cause to reject the incorporation effort. So whatever it finds, it could find that it would work totally fine for everyone and then okay, or it could find that there would be very negative effects on the town of Greenberg and the services it's able to provide if Edgemont incorporates. But even if it finds that, the uh, incorporation opponents can't then point to it and say, okay, so we're not going to do this. It sure seems like Edgemont's gotten another shot at incorporation. It's gotten, it's got the opportunity to have multiple shots until 2040. Does that mean its incorporation is essentially a done deal? I mean, they've tried twice recently and both times they've been thrown out by, you know, not even by the town of Greenberg, but by independent courts. And I don't think there's any guarantee that it would be more successful the third or fourth time, 
Uh, that said, I'm not <laughs> I'm not a, a, an expert on the you know the precise way to draw up a legal legal village and corporation petition. So maybe maybe they've they've learned from those experiences and will will uh, you know uh, fix whatever got them disqualified last time. And if it goes to a vote. I talk to people who are for the incorporation in Edgemont. I talk to people who are against it in Edgemont. So uh, I don't think anyone has polled that question yet. So I think we would have to see what happens. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, camping and glamping at Bethel Woods. We speak to CEO Eric Francis next. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, host of On Point. Each hour of On Point is a journey to help make complicated issues understandable. Every issue brings more questions, like how did we get here? Why is this happening? And what does it mean? And how do we fix it? So let's figure this out and make sense of the world together. Join me weekday mornings at 11 here on Radio Catskill. Hi. I'm Bill Williams. Join me for the Kingfisher Project Tuesday on the local edition, where my guest will be Carol McDade. Carol has spent decades in Washington working on public policy that impacts addiction and mental health. She also co-founded the McShin Foundation, a nonprofit full-service recovery organization. Tune in Tuesday night at 6, or catch the full conversation on the Kingfisher Project podcast at WJFFradio.org. Only from Radio Catskill. Listen local. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Patricio Robayo. Bethel Wood Center for the Arts, the original site of the 1969 Woodstock Festival, has launched a brand new state-of-the-art campground. Folks can now sleep along the Howell Festival grounds. Joining us live in the studio is Eric Francis, the CEO of Bethel Wood Center for the Arts. Good morning, Eric. Welcome to the program. Oh, let me check your microphone. Check the microphone again one time. Check. Yeah, there you go. Now we can hear you. Thank you for having us. Yes, fantastic. So how did this this idea of camping and glamping at the woods come about? Well, I'd love to say we invented it, but uh, Woodstock 69 invented it. Uh, (laughs) We did a couple of of, uh, EDM festivals back in 2014 uh, when we started, and it showed that people did have an appetite to come and camp here. Uh, So we started doing the homework on it, and 10 years later, we're... We're there, which is great. Um, this is a an initial phase to see how it would work with a bunch of different levels. So anybody who just wants to show up in a car and put their tent up to their very expensive RV or glamp in a six-bedroom-ish or, you know, six, uh, six-person six tent uh, with all the five-star amenities uh, are all available. Right. Yeah, so let's talk about that because Beth Woods is among the first venue of its kind to sort of offer a campground uh, facilities of this caliber that we have here, uh, which include a spectrum of options. So let's talk about the different types of camping experiences that are available uh, for the season. Yeah, so we're we're still working. We're we're actively pushing dirt around to finish up so that this summer we're uh, ready for everything. But last year we completed the RV campground, which has electric and water hookups, as well as you know improvements to that site so that there's bathrooms for people who want a car camp. And uh, you know there's a price point for every person who is looking to camp at Bethel Woods. Um, and then there'll be some glamping situations where you'll have bathroom, all the amenities in your tent, and then there'll be also tents where it just has a bed and a phone charger and maybe a light and a fan in it for those that just want to flop and not make the ride home. 
Right, right. So, yes, yeah, so just give folks a, I'm sure people know what glamping is, but glamping is a step up from regular camping, setting up your tent and sleeping out in the woods. Uh, has sometimes, like I said, have beds, amenities inside the tent, right? Yes. Yeah. This shower, bathroom wow. in some of the tents. Yeah. Yeah. So now you also have RV and car uh, camping also. So folks have come in in their RVs. Um, any things that are sort of what kind of RVs that are not allowed or anything that's sort of not allowed uh, no, in this we, camp season? We're, we're going to have two different types. And again, on on day to day concerts will be one type of camping. But if we end up in a festival situation, where we might have a show that might be here for a few days, which is something we're actively looking at for the summer. Um, you'll have all different types of amenities available for that. But uh, RVs like right now, the spots are very generous and wide. So we can take the biggest ones down to the smallest ones. We have spots for people that want to have all the amenities to plug in to those that are just like, I'm self-contained and just put me in a field by myself. So we have a bunch of different options. So is this option available for all the concerts or particular concerts throughout the year? It's going to be for all at this point. That's what we're, we're aiming to do. It's it's based on events happening at Bethel Woods. So right. that's the goal. Um, we have to also deal with the calendar of back-to-back shows. So if somebody's going to say Hootie and the blowfish and doesn't want to stay for the next night, you know, for the next show, we have to deal with that a little bit, but, um, it should be for every show. Wow. That's great. Fantastic experience. A great way to see, you know, cause I see a lot of folks are coming up from, you know, for the city, a lot of other parts here to offer that kind of, uh, amenities here at the Bethel Woods. And I guess, like I said, I mentioned it, it harks back to the 1969 Woodstock festival where people were camping out. Um, so of those who have been to Bethel Woods, uh, just to give us sort of a mental image exactly where are these campgrounds? Where is the RV campground exactly is located? Well, the RV campground is where camping took place at Woodstock, oh, which wow. is up on Best Road. Yeah. Um, from the Bethel Woods campus, you look right at it when you look across the field. Uh, and then our glamping sites are actually right next to the pavilion on the property. So you would walk out of the pavilion up the hill a little bit and you're in the campground. Wow. So you're really right there, right, really close to the action there. Right there. Wow. Yeah. So you, you have done this in the past at other festivals. How's, has, how has that experience been? Uh, must have been a possible one because obviously you are doing this now uh, full time. It is. I think part of, um, you know, the dream of Woodstock was getting people out of the city and having a festival that wasn't in a park surrounded by concrete jungle, right? Uh, so getting people out of their environment here for a couple days not only is good for their experience, but it's great for tourism here um, and also keeps our roads a little easier on concerts where we deal with traffic. When there's 16,000 people at Bethel Woods, it's difficult. If we can peel some of those people away because they're staying, we'll just make everybody happier too. Right. And talk about really making it out uh, not only just for a night concert, but just really making it sort of a – uh, an event for when it's in itself. I see a lot of the events, a lot of other organizations are doing that. They have a weekend event, try to re- really make it a sort of a weekend thing. The folks that come, come into the area, shop at the local businesses, eat at the local restaurants, and sort of really, really make an economic impact on that the is, area. That is the primary goal. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, you have, it seems like on Facebook, Bethel Woods is popping up almost every day with a new concert coming up. Um, you want to give sort of a lineup of what people can expect for this summer? Sure. Um, you know, right now and, and, Plenty more to come as we're working feverishly to book the season. But um, Hootie and the Blowfish uh, right now is our first show in June. And Alanis Morissette's coming. Luke Bryan just announced. Jason Mraz. Kids Bop and Practical Jokers are actually coming, which we're all excited. Something new and exciting. Uh, Train and REO Speedwagon. Limp Biscuit. Hosier is actually sold out. Sold out the first day wow. we put it on sale. Yeah. Uh, Skinner and ZZ Top and Melissa Etheridge right now. So it's yeah, a, it's, it's a, a good lineup. lineup. Um, more to come, 
more festival type things will be announcing hopefully soon. Uh, so we're excited. Yeah, my daughter was fine, was uh, happy when I heard told her that Kids Pop was coming to Bethel Woods. So <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> that's good. Um, so before we go, I want to just tell folks about this special tribute that's on the website for Bethel Woods. It's about for Melanie, uh, known as the First Lady of Woodstock, who recently passed passed away. What you can tell us about the tribute that's on the website? Yeah, well, we were fortunate enough to have what we believe is um, Melanie's last interview um, from um, 30 days ago, I would say. Um, but she's uh, a very um, interesting story, like many stories of Woodstock, which was she was one of the undercard performers that nobody knew who they were, and that sort of shaped the rest of their lives and their careers. There's many like that, Richie Havens and Mountain, like some of these bands, their their whole you know career was sprung at Woodstock. So hers is uh, very similar. Um, there's, there's some great stories in that interview. If you click and listen, uh, based on her experience where she had so much stage fright, she was ready to run, but she ended up doing it. And luckily she did, but, uh, it's great. Everybody should click on and give it a listen. Right. Definitely. And I said, it's the home of Woodstock 1969. You know, uh, not only are the concerts there, but also have a great museum that's on site there. They can really, like I said, see all the history that's in, and that happened there. Uh, yeah. In 1969. So, um, Eric, before we go, is there anything else that we have not touched on you want folks to know about, either this season or glamping or camping? Well, I stay tuned. There's a lot of uh, great stuff coming up, the, coming up the pike. We're also actively trying to hire staff. So if you know of people that want summer jobs or you're looking to volunteer, um, definitely uh, keep an eye on what's going on. And then tons of programs for kids, adults, you know, just watch the website. There's something for everybody. Yes, absolutely. There's more information at Bethel Woods Center. Excuse me. There's more information at BethelWoodsCenter.org. Eric Francis, CEO of Bethel Woods. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, the latest headlines on today's edition of the Sullivan County Democrat. We'll be right back. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Tanya Mosley. If you collect classic cars and you're thinking about making some room in your collection, please consider donating it. Proceeds help us bring you the NPR news that you expect for your community. Thanks in advance, and here's how to get started. We accept any vehicle, running or not. Donate your car, boat, or motorcycle at WJFFRadio.org. Hey, it's Cassie from Rare Pair Radio. Playing you the fruit of all things sweet, Fridays, 8 p.m. to 9 p.m., mostly female artists from rock, funk, punk, pop, and more. All rare, only on WJFF Radio Catskill. Hey everybody, this is Jeff Loeffler of The Deep End, and you can join me each and every Friday night from 10 to midnight as I explore the deep end of the catalogs of bands maybe you know, maybe you don't know. You'll hear some Rolling Stones, Grateful Dead, Government Mule, right alongside bands like The Electric, Peanut Butter, Conspiracy, Kula Shaker, and Supergrass. That's The Deep End each and every Friday night from 10 to midnight, right here on Radio Catskill. Stephen Dubner, on the next Freakonomics Radio, could a new set of rules restore trust to academia? These are not one-off cases. You have to fix it. But is academia even capable of changing? I think that my generation fought against the 
open science movement for far too long. The hidden side of academic fraud. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. This afternoon at 1 o'clock on Radio Catskill. Hey, it's Steve Inskeep. And I'm Aisha Roscoe. One of the things you can count on from NPR and this station, we've got your back. When it comes to reporting the news, bringing you facts you can count on. You can help by donating a vehicle you no longer need. That car could be worth hundreds of dollars in support or more as a donation. Think about it. We accept any vehicle, running or not, including cars, trucks, boats, RVs, motorcycles, and more. Donate at WJFFRadio.org. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Patricio Robayo. It's time for the Sullivan County Democrat Update. Uh, I do have an editor's note for this next segment. Um, I spoke to Derek Kirk, the editor of Sullivan County Democrat, the interview you're about to hear soon, uh, yesterday about the Sullivan County Head Start abruptly closing over the weekend and leaving parents and guardians scrambling to sort of find, not sort of, but find health care and searching for answers. Since I spoke to Derek yesterday, the Sullivan County Legislature released a statement saying that the Sullivan County Legislature's and officials are working diligently with local stakeholders and state and federal representatives and Head Start's board and staff to address this situation. More information will be shared when it's available. Anyone needs assistance to encourage to, are encouraged to call Sullivan County's Health and Human Services at 845-292-0100, 0100. And Congress Mark Marilano released also, also released a statement last night saying the closure left nearly 400 families without child care and almost 100 providers without jobs. Despite being fully funded, we're approximately 3.6 million in federal funding until March 31st, 2024. It is unclear whether the facility applied for an additional award to continue operations beyond that date. The closures has prompted efforts by local officials to identify a backup facility, secure temporary care for children, and find a new permanent Head Start provider. He went on to say, and I quote, In the days since closure, attempts to contact the office of Head Start in Washington, D.C. has gone unanswered, and two meetings to discuss a fix have been canceled. The congressman went on to say, I'm going public with this information because Head Start won't. This organization at all levels owes Sullivan County answers. I am not going to be silent while working families and their kids get screwed because of this incompetence. Here's Derek Kirk and our conversation about what happened with Head Start. So Sullivan County Head Start, they announced their immediate closure via social media on Friday, February 2nd, uh, and that they were going to be closed until further notice. This closure impacts over 300 children in the area and their, as long as their, as well as their families and leaving them without services as well as 83 full time and 11 part time employees out of work. The Sullivan County Head Start officials told the Democrat on Monday that they plan on reopening eventually and that this is a temporary closure. They said that they will have a joint announcement expected soon on the future of the Head Start school with the organization's administrative director, Bertha Williams. They are going to be meeting with county officials and representatives from Head Start today to discuss February 5th. County legislator Louis Alvarez suggested that the reasoning behind the closures is due to a lack of funding. And he has currently reached out to United States Congressman Mark Molinaro, who represents New York 19, 
his office in hopes of federal assistance or maybe some more answers coming down the pike for the future of the Head Start School. Uh, commentary on the social media post that announced its closure showed shock and concern over the sudden closure. A lot of people were expressing concerns of where the children will have, will be placed while the parents still have to go to work. A variety of other issues that have arisen with the closure of the school. So more to come on that in the future and the, and the fate of the Head Start School, which affects hundreds of families in the Salmon County area. So the reason that they gave right now is so far is that lack of funding caused the school to close and it's a temporary issue that eventually will reopen because it just sounds it's like I said, it's an abrupt closing of the, of the, of this, of the head start. Yes. And I saw this a lot of commentary also online about talking about some parents are saying, you know, what they're going to do. Some of them work full time and what they're going to do with, with for as far as childcare goes, if you have a young one all of a sudden in a couple of days, knowing that they'd be home from school. Did they give you some kind of timeline on when this first conference is going to happen? Not exactly the hour to hour, but we do know that it takes place Monday, February 5th. So today is time of recording. They should be meeting and hopefully they'll be giving an answer by the end of the day today or early this week. So parents can know what's going on what they can do for their children and the students and the teachers as well so they can know when they might be able to return to work. Just move on to to Forsberg. An issue that's been uh, talked about in a lot of meetings in most recent years is short-term rentals and those services like Airbnb or Invero who uses, you use your house to rent out for weekend guests or long or sort of short-term guests, obviously. Why is it called short-term rentals? So uh, how is Forsberg handling the situation? He's I understand they passed a law that deals with short-term rentals. Yes. So at last month's town board meeting, the town board of Forestburg solidified a number of recurring annual fees for home-based businesses, with one of those fees being for short-term rentals, which set the annual fee at $2,000. And this was met with pushback immediately from a number of short-term rental owners within the town. According to Deputy Town Supervisor Steve Bonofsky, there are approximately 30 short-term rental in operation in the town. So it affects a good number of taxpayers. Uh, in light of this, after some discussion, the supervisor town, supervisor Dan Hope Jr. motioned to reconsider the fee as well as suspend the, the fee until further notice, which was agreed upon by the board. In the interest of finding common ground, a committee is expected to be formed which would be spearheaded by board member Karen Ellswig and Deputy Supervisor Bonofsky. Uh, and they are made their intention to go out into the community and make conversation with the short-term rental owners to see if they can find common ground before their next meeting in March. So more to come on that as we march forward into the future of short-term rentals in Forestburg. And keeping on Forsberg, I understand they passed a law or in talks of passing a law that would give a sort of a tax breaks for those volunteer firefighters. Short-term rentals were not the only topic of conversation in Forsberg town board meeting last week. They also jointly held a public hearing alongside the Forsberg Fire Department, which focused on local law number one of 2024, which is a property tax bill to generate incentive for people to volunteer for the Forestburg Fire Service. This is seeming to be a common practice in a, some, a lot of different town, towns as communities are hurting for volunteer 
EMS workers and firefighters, necessary services and people that are have been lacking. So as a result of this local law, which will be effective as soon as the for a fire department holds their annual meeting and votes on it. It will uh, allow real property owned by an enrolled member of an incorporated volunteer fire company, fire department, or incorporated volunteer ambulance service, or by such enrolled member and their spouse shall be exempt for 10% of their assessed value of their property. A nice little give back bonus, Sullivan County's bravest uh, force with their fire department and EMS workers that go out and do the work every day. Hope more to come on that in the future and what else is coming in for uh, Forestburg in future editions of the Sullivan County Democrat. Yeah, Derek, thank you so much for talking to us. Let us know what's happening on the pages of the Sullivan County Democrat on newsstands now. You can find them online at sedemocratonline.com. Thank you so much, Derek. We'll take a quick break and we'll talk to Maggie Fitzpatrick about her new column in the Democrat. We'll be right back. This is Radio Chat Skill. Sullivan County has two warming centers that are open to all every night this winter. The Liberty Shelter is located at the United Methodist Church on North Main Street, and the Monticello Shelter is located at St. John's Episcopal Church on St. John Street. These shelters are open for anyone from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. every night through Saturday, April 15th. More information at SullivanNY.us. And keep listening for winter weather updates on Radio Catskill. I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now!, independent grassroots global news. Our reporting includes breaking daily news headlines and in-depth interviews with people on the front lines of the world's most pressing issues. People speaking for themselves, providing unique and sometimes provocative perspectives on global events. Democracy Now!, weekdays at noon, right here on Radio Catskill. Greetings, I'm Matt Hurtado. Join me on a journey where pixels meet melodies and controllers become conductors. This is Virtual Soundscapes, a show that transports you to the sonic realms of video game magic. In this journey, we'll uncover the hidden treasures of video game soundtracks from the classics to modern day and speak with industry veterans. Join me for the debut of Virtual Soundscapes on February 15th at 10 p.m. Only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. Maggie Fitzpatrick is the health and wellness columnist for the Sullivan County Democrat, and she joins us every Tuesday to talk about health and her latest column, Moving Towards Health, and column in today's issue. And today's Maggie, welcome to the welcome back to the program. Hi, how are you? And this this week's column is about stress, yes, and how stress can affect your health, right? Yep, absolutely. So let's talk about that. What is sort of some uh, what is some of the big telltale signs that stress is affecting your health in a negative way? Yeah, that's a really great question. So a lot of times when we think of stress, we only think of the negative. So I would also love to talk about positive forms of stress. But when we do think about negative forms of stress, there are a lot of signs that can let us know that it's impacting our health, right? So you'll start to notice that you are more tired. You're not recovering as well, right? Maybe your heart rate is elevated. Your blood pressure is elevated. Um, you have a hard time like settling down or, you know, turning your brain off, things like that. 
Um, it can turn into also physical manifestations, right? So stress can also turn into physical illnesses. So that will look differently for each person, depending on what they're predisposed to. Um, but it could look like, you know, aches, pains, um, any sort of illness can manifest from stress as well. Right. And, but you talked about, uh, so those are some of the negative effects of stress on the body. Um, there are some positive ones. What are they? Yeah. So there are two different types of stress and negative stress is usually what we think of. You know, it makes us feel overwhelmed. It makes us feel like whatever we're trying to handle is unmanageable right? It makes us feel anxious and um, maybe angry, right? And, you know, a lot of negative emotions come along with that. But there is also another form of stress. It's called eustress. And eustress is stress that we put on ourselves that is manageable, that we do feel like we have the capability of handling. And it feels really challenging in the moment. However, you are able to accomplish it. And when it's done, you feel better, right? So, Distress would be anything that makes you feel more negative, where you stress would be anything that makes you feel more positive, even if it's hard in the moment. Right. So sort of like it, it being a sort of a motivator. Being yeah. So take actions for whatever thing you're, you're facing. Yeah, exactly. So how did you choose this topic? Uh, what, what was the, the impetus of this week's topic? Um, my husband and I were on a walk and we we were talking about different types of stress because um, him and I, I would say that we deal with a lot of stress. We run a couple of businesses, um, and, you know, coaching and writing and all the things that we do. And so a lot of times what we're trying to manage is how do we impact ourselves positively with forms of use stress, which could be like exercise or a new challenge or a new work project without overloading our system too much to the point where everything feels distressing, right? Everything feels unmanageable. So we were on a walk and we were having a conversation about that. And we were actually talking about the intensity of exercise, right? Because while exercise is usually something we could consider to be a positive stressor, right? It does place stress on our body, but we end up with a positive result, right? Sometimes if the rest of your stress levels in other areas of your life are too high, so we have a out of balance amount of distress, adding in forms of stress that are usually good can have a detrimental effect on us if we're compiling too much at once, right? So it's a delicate balance of being able to balance both here. So we were talking about that and he was talking about wanting to change up his workout routine and... We were talking about how in a phase where work is really, really stressful, he's going to have to play around with the intensity of his exercise to determine what intensity of exercise makes him feel best. Because while high intensity exercise might have made him feel best with a different level of stress, it might not make him feel best now, or maybe it will. Right. right. Maybe it will. So we have to play around with those things. Yeah. And I can see, you know, stress, stress, like talking about just being in just trying to be healthy could be stressful because you sort of overwhelm yourself, especially at the beginning of the year. You know, a lot of big people make resolutions to be healthier. And, you know, the the things that the memes I see online about you know, the gym is packed on January 1st and yes. February 2nd, it's empty. Yeah. Um, but that could be also, you know, that could be stressful for folks who want to get healthy, uh, take on too much at too soon and sort of not outpace them and sort of get stressed out. And, and that could be sort of like, a, like a negative stress. Yes. And be overwhelmed. Um, and you also talk about, you know, uh, being overwhelmed with all the things you have to do in the day in your day-to-day life. 
Yeah. Um, what are some good techniques? So if you feel overwhelmed and have that stress of being overwhelmed, all many, so many tasks that have to go on any day, what's a good way to sort of de-stress? That's a really great question. I think there's two different things we can talk about here. So typical things we think about when it comes to de-stressing would be like self-care, you know, do something for yourself that makes you feel good, right? So that is one route that we can go. But I'd actually like to talk about the route of evaluating what we are doing and what we're trying to accomplish that is making us feel really stressed like that, right? Because taking on your health should be a stress that makes you feel better. It should be a form of you stress, right? And if it's not, then that probably means we're trying to take on too much at once. We're setting expectations that are too high and we are essentially setting ourselves up for failure because we're making it unmanageable, right? So what I would encourage you to do is look at what your goal is and see if the time frame you're giving yourself is even realistic at all, right? Maybe we have to scale that back a little bit or extend out our ex- our expectations on how long it's going to take us to accomplish this goal. So that way it does actually feel manageable and doesn't feel like we're trying to put ourselves under all of this pressure to accomplish something that even the healthiest person probably wouldn't be able to accomplish in that time frame. Right? right. So I think we have to look at what it is we're setting out to do and make sure that we are looking at it realistically and making sure it's something that is achievable, right? Like when we're setting goals, we want to think about smart goals. So we want them to be specific, measurable, achievable or attainable, um, realistic and time bound, right? And if any of those things are out of place, it's going to take a stress that should make us feel good and turn it into a stress that makes us feel bad. Absolutely. Just speaking, I just popped in my head. Um, stress that you know it could be motivating. I remember an incident in my life that um, we had to. It was a bad news of a, of a family illness. I don't. This might be not be a good anecdote, but for some reason, once I found out that news and knew what the illness was, even though I was very stressed about what was happening, it sort of motivated me. It's okay. I know what to do now. I know A, B, and C. We got to do this. We got to do this. We're going to do this. And it's sort of was living on that stress of motivation mm-hmm. uh, to do things. And I, I also feel that sometimes in, in the beginning of the year, so knowing I have my, my goals and I have all this to do and I'm ready, I'm ready to tackle it. Well, and I just want to bring that up. Uh, one thing that you mentioned in your, in your article is uh, a way of, I guess a negative way to de-stress is sort of avoiding uh, some certain situations that won't cause you stress, but that could be also be a negative thing if you avoid uh, stressful situations yeah. for too long. Yeah, so that's a, I'm so happy you caught that. Um, a lot of times what we want to do, right, is we think, okay, I'm stressed out. So let me just avoid everything that's making me stressed and I'll magically feel better. Right. But if we always avoid the hard thing, we won't feel fulfilled. Right. If we never do anything that is challenging, we won't feel fulfilled or good about ourselves. And it doesn't increase our confidence. It doesn't increase our ability to do things, right? It doesn't make us better. And as humans, we're not hardwired to be mediocre. We're not hardwired to just exist, right? We're hardwired to thrive. But a lot of times we put ourselves in situations that default to, let me just survive, right? And when we put ourselves in that situation, we avoid hard things. And we're like, I'm just going to coast through this and survive. Then we start to feel worse and worse about ourselves. We start to feel less confident, 
we start to feel less motivated. We start to feel less able to do the things that we want to do, right? And so we actually do want to find a balance of positive stressors in our life that continue to challenge us and push us forward. And like you said, help us feel motivated, right? And we know what it is that we're trying to accomplish. And if we continue to do that, then we continue to progress and grow as humans, which leads to better health in all of the categories, more more improved self-esteem, right? And more success in whatever success means to you. Yeah, I, I, I agree, definitely agree with that because uh, I mean, just my life as a journalist or in, in being in radio or whatever, uh, I knew when I felt uncomfortable, those, that was the reason. When I felt uncomfortable, I knew... That was a good way to grow. Yes. I don't know if I'm stating yeah. it right. Uh, like if I'm stuck in an uncomfortable situation or if I'm giving a project that I'm not sure I can do, uh, I know I'm going to grow from it. Because I have a tendency of me, I used to say yes to everything and then I'll figure out how to do it later. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I relate to that. Um, so I think because those are opportunities. I don't want to give up. And just because I don't know how to do something, um, it's even more of a, of a, of a sort of a positive stressor because then I, then I sort of learn something new or learn that I can stretch a little bit more and then I can do it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that sort of makes sense. Yeah. It absolutely yeah. makes sense because it's that you're applying belief in yourself and confidence to a stressful situation and the, the awareness of the fact that you can accomplish it even if you don't necessarily know how, right? You believe in yourself to do it. And it feels attainable, even like we said, if you don't know how exactly it's going to happen, those things are what helps the stressor feel more positive. Whereas if you said, I don't know how to do this, I'm going to say yes to do it. And it's impossible for me to figure it out. There's no way I could do this. That makes that stress then feel more negative, right? So the way we approach it in our mind is really important. And it, it, it just shows that one thing, one form of stress isn't inherently good or bad. Like the way that we look at it really can change whether or not it has a positive or negative effect on us. Right. And also, but uh, at the same time, even though, you know, it's good to have these stressful situations come up and positive situations, but it's always good to sort of have a balance, right? And to yeah. manage your stress levels. What's a good way to sort of manage your stress level? Yeah. I really like to find activities that make me fully engaged and not be thinking about the other things that are making me stressed, even if it's for a short period of time. So what I love to do is I love to play sports, right? So like on Sundays, I just joined a co-ed soccer league. And for that hour and a half, I'm just playing soccer and I'm just having fun, right? And no matter what else is going on, I'm not thinking about those things because I'm fully invested in this hobby, Right. And I think that hobbies are really great because you can you can dive in, you can fully give yourself to it and it gives your brain a break and your body a break from trying to manage those other things that are going on in your life. Yeah. I mean, when you just mentioned that, I, took, I remember a couple of years ago, I took up dancing. I'm not a good dancer. For some reason, I, I got the encouragement of going to, to go dance. And for that hour and a half, it was the first time in a long time that I didn't think of anything else mm-hmm. in my life. I just figuring out how to dance and, and being involved in dancing. So that's really great. Cause that's oh, definitely the stressor because I remember after dance, I felt so, uh, it was almost like a work. Obviously it is a workout. Yeah. But, uh, I, you, I, later on, as I realized that I'm not thinking about what was stressing me at my job and it sort of give my brain a sort of a, a rest from that stress and have a sort of a, a different type of stress. Yes. Cause I didn't know how to dance and I was trying to figure out how to dance. So <laughs> right. I'm nervous about that. So, yeah. 
Um, so Maggie, uh, Fitzpatrick is the one is comments for Sullivan County Democrat. Uh, Maggie, before we go, is there anything else I have not touched on? You want folks to know about your column this week? Um, I don't think so. I just hope that it opens your eyes a little bit to seeing that, um, yes, we want to manage distressing events and not all stress is bad. Absolutely. Maggie Fitzpatrick's column is out in the Democrat today. And that does it for the local edition. Thank you so much for joining me on Radio Chasco. Tim Bruno will be back. I'm Patricia Robayo. Thanks for listening.